Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. If you've been joining us for the last four episodes, you'll notice that we've turned a bit of a corner. We began with looking at what was literally a cry from the heart. It was a response to emails and requests that I was getting about fear and despair and hopelessness and anger over not only over the Black Lives Matter protests and the, what happened to George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and others, countless other African-Americans. Uh, it wasn't just despair over that. It was despair over Donald Trump's photo ops, his co-opting of religious language, his assumption that he could just command the support of the overwhelming majority of evangelical and charismatic Christians. And he's right. He can command the overwhelming support of charismatic and evangelical Christians. And so a lot of my emails I get are people just despairing over that too. Why aren't their leaders and the spokespeople most associated with the way of Jesus? Why are they so toothless? If they are, they usually remain silent or they often remain silent. And then if they do use their voice at all, it's to support Trump and to entrench or shore up systems and forms of life that are so manifestly bad. We could go into it forever, but they're just bad. And this isn't to say that other sides and other voices are brilliant and wonderful and we should rush to endorse them no matter what. It's just to point out that the sides that command the most enthusiastic Christian endorsement, the ones that are doing their actions in the name of Jesus, are also really bad, anti-life, anti-human, and anti-Christ. And we need to admit that. And I've spent the last three or four episodes facing that head on. But you'll notice in the last episode, in number four, I'm turning a corner because talking about the old imagination, the old political imagination, can only take you so far. And it's not very constructive in the end. It's rubble clearing. I think it needs to be said. I think it's true. But also, it's not the whole story. Now, there is a, an anecdote, which I don't know if it's true, but hey, it should be, which is that if you are a bank clerk and you've got a new job and uh, they want to teach you how to spot a fake banknote, they don't put you in a room with lots of fake banknotes. They put you in the room with the real things. They give you a handful of tens and twenties and fifties and hundreds, and they get you to look at it, read it, smell it, feel it, crinkle it, touch it, taste it. They get you to know the real thing. So that as soon as the fake thing crosses your palm, you'll spot it right away. You don't train people to spot forgeries by putting them in a room with forgeries, because there'll always be a new way to deviate from the original. But what you do do is spend time with the original so that you can instinctively spot it. This is what Jesus said, right? Come, take a walk with me and learn from me the unforced rhythms of grace. Take my yoke upon you for my burden is easy. And this is what we want to do now. I want to spend time looking at the, the renewed Christian political imagination. Sometimes I refer to it as a new political imagination, but let's be honest, it's actually just an old one. 
It's the one in the New Testament. It's the one that the earliest followers of Jesus, the ones who knew Jesus or who knew the people who knew Jesus, this is what they thought when they approached states, nations, power, violence, money, popularity, patriotism, all those things that we've been talking about and which are getting modern day Christians in such a pickle, the earliest followers of Jesus also had something to say about these things. And this is their political imagination. Their Christian political imagination came from trying to follow the way of Jesus as best as they could. And this is the kind of stuff I want to look at now. A lot of times people will, uh, when I talk about this, which I have been, I teach about this all the time, and uh, people will say, I've never heard this stuff before. Why doesn't my Christian culture talk about this? I once heard a social media expert. He was like a historian of communication. And he was looking at the um, post-truth fake news phenomenon that we see, where it's becoming almost impossible to have a common language or a common information mindset where different partisan groups will just produce and absorb their own information. And, and it's like two spheres that never cross. The different cultural tribes have their own language, their own information, their own sources. And he called this a broken information ecology. And I recognize that right away because I think that's what's going on with a lot of, well, my tribe, evangelical charismatic Christians. We swim in a broken information ecology. There is a lot of stuff going on which we don't get, we don't see, and we don't learn because our touchstones our capstones, our anchor points, are also at sea. And it's true, you can grow up in a Christian environment and not hear a lot of things. The broken information ecology idea also explains why Christians can be so adamant in their support of Trump or conspiracy theories or various right-wing conservative causes, because all the information that they're getting comes from a small pool of sources who themselves are completely opposed, not just ignorant of, but actively opposed to learning or absorbing information that comes from outside the approved place or the approved source. Again, I grew up with this. I grew up in a little evangelical Bible college town called Prairie Bible College in Three Hills, Alberta. And you could see it happening. We were part of the same culture warrior evangelical rise of the evangelical right. We were part of that world, even though we were up in Canada. And you could 100% see it happening. We would get textbooks. I went to a Christian school and we would have textbooks written by self-avowed right-wing American culture warriors who were training up people in order to fight the liberal media and to defend the voice of the tradition and of patriotism and be anti-socialist and anti-communist and the whole the whole point was to create an alternative ecosystem for information. Approved voices, approved media outlets, approved authors. And they've got what they wanted. I find it very ironic that I, I grew up amongst people who were constantly talking about the danger of postmodernism and, and relativism and uh, what happens when truth is abandoned for the sake of opinion. And now that is the same group that has grasped this with two 
hands and held it close to their chest. So only those information sources that affirm a pre-decided commitment to certain evangelical and conservative causes is allowed through, and only those voices which continue to perpetuate that type of atmosphere are allowed to continue, which is how you get a broken information ecology, a system of the production and reception of information which has been tainted from the start and is essentially designed not to transmit anything new. And unfortunately, amongst Christians, this also includes the New Testament. <laughs> and if you step outside of your little bubble of approved voices, which, by the way, the touchstone for this, as I've been pointing out, basically comes down to patriotism. It essentially comes down to preserving a nationalist outlook. They might not use that language, they might not think it, but that is what happens again and again and again, is that the voices that challenge the idea that Christians are meant to rule the nation, or that your nation is great, or that your nation is Christian or should be once again, or was, those are the voices that get blocked and never heard from again. This is why I keep saying it's nationalism and patriotism that lies behind almost all of the reasons why the evangelical subculture has got it so wrong. And this is true in America and in the UK and in Canada. Anywhere I've encountered people who drink from the evangelical or charismatic wells, you can find nationalism and patriotism very close to the surface. Very close. And I don't mean by this that they're all hardcore nationalists or hardcore racists. That is clearly not true. What I do mean, however, is that it's part of the evangelical and charismatic milieu, it's part of their mental furniture, that it's part of the Christian's job to run a country, that Christians should have influence over the laws of the land, that Christians once did have influence and that there is such a thing as a Christian nation, and that we are not one now but could be in the future. These are all assumptions that have as their base patriotism and the idea that Christians should be running a country. And then, of course, as I mentioned before, if you really fundamentally believe that Christians should be running their countries, and then you think that countries are good things, capital G, then you are aware that following the way of Jesus doesn't help you run a country very well, because countries demand and require activities and actions and attitudes that are diametrically opposed to what Jesus says or does in the Gospels, or what we find in the Fruits of the Spirit, or in the Beatitudes, for example. So note what happens. These are Christians and Christian cultures deeply entrenched, deeply entrenched, part of our history, where people who are self-identified as Christians will then mine the Bible for rules and regulations which will help them govern their countries. And they will find in the Bible all sorts of places where they can justify genocide, slavery, rule of order, rule of law, wielding the sword, capital punishment. All, they can justify a lot of uh, necessary actions for governing countries in the Bible. What they won't find, and what they have to downplay, is how Jesus approached all those things 
and what a Jesus-shaped imagination might look like. And there we have a culture which is unwilling to imagine that perhaps a Jesus-shaped way of looking at the world might put you at odds with Leviticus or Deuteronomy. Furthermore, a Jesus-shaped way of imagining politics will change the way that we read Romans 13, where everyone is meant to be subject to the ruling authorities, or the book of Revelation, where the Babylon seems to come to a bad end at the hands of Jesus. If you are already reading these texts from the point of view as someone who assumes that countries are good and that they should be run by Christians, then you will produce a Bible that looks authoritarian, violent, and pro-nationalistic, as we have seen and as we see today, every day, on your Facebook feeds, in the headlines, and on your Sunday morning pulpits. This is an example of something called reading from above. And reading from above and reading from below is the first of the tools I want to give us for renewing a Christian political imagination. When you read from above, as evangelicals and powerful Christians of all nationalities are wont to do, you are reading from a point of view where you are in charge. You found yourself now in the top 1% of people who have ever lived at any time. You are rich. You are powerful. Trust me, you've won the lottery in life. And we read the Bible as winners. And so we read the Bible and we find places where people are in charge. And we read the text as if it's teaching us how to be in charge. We're used to reading from above. But what happens when you read from below? What happens when you read these texts, especially the New Testament, as written by and written for people who aren't in positions of power, don't find themselves able to wield the sword or the levers of justice and law, who don't have a public voice, who can't organize themselves in any way so as to exert influence? What happens then when we read the New Testament from below? And reading from below is where you start to develop the new Christian political imagination. It was not written by powerful people for powerful people. It was written by Jesus people for Jesus people. And these were people who expected persecution, who experienced crucifixion, who were despised and rejected and marginal. That's who Jesus people were. And now today you find people who find themselves marginalized and despised, and instead of going to their Jesus texts, they go straight to the world. What does the world do when you find yourself marginalized? What does the world do when you find yourself under the thumb of a bully? What does the world do when your voice isn't being respected and your power isn't being exerted? Well, the world organizes itself to be a bigger bully. It relies on strength, power, and success. It just so happens that Jesus had quite a lot of things to say about those things. But you miss it if you read from above and not from below. Which is why a lot of evangelical Christians have never heard the kinds of things I'm about to talk to you about. Because we swim in a broken information ecology. And I want to help fix it. And I suspect a good place to start is with the word gospel and with the word faith. 
And I know I mentioned both of these terms in a previous episode, but it seems a good place now to repeat that as we rummage through our toolbox looking for tools to rebuild a Christian imagination of politics. Imagine, if you will, that language is a superstore, a big box shop, with all different aisles labelled different things, and different shelves with different names, based on what you're trying to describe, families of words you're trying to use. When the earliest followers of Jesus, the people who actually knew Jesus, or who knew the people that knew Jesus, when they sat down to capture and write down what it felt like to be around him, and what it sounded like to be in his presence, time and time again, the words they reached for in their superstore of the mind were not religious words. They weren't theological or philosophical or even moral words. Time and time again, the words they reached for were political they were seen to be political at the time, and they were intended to be political by the writers. I'm going to look at some of these words later on. They include king, kingdom, heaven, eternal life, power, submission, cross. Just try and describe the gospel without any reference to any of those words. Scratch that. Try and describe the gospel without reference to politics at all, because even the word gospel, euangelion, is a political term. It was a Roman military phrase. It doesn't just mean good news, as in any random bit of good news. It means the good news of a rightful victory, the good news of a rightful king taking his place. It has the connotation of your side is winning. The right people are on the move. For example, if your town or city was under siege by the enemy, and then Caesar gathered together his soldiers, and he broke the siege, he would then send his heralds into the city, and they would cry, Euangelion, Euangelion, good news, good news, gospel, gospel, your rightful ruler has broken the siege. So isn't it interesting that when Mark, who is the oldest and first writer of the Gospels, when he sits down, to capture what it felt like to be around Jesus, he starts with, in the beginning, the gospel of Jesus, God's anointed, or God's king. Right from the start, the language is kingly, political. It has to do with the good news that the rightful king has broken the siege. And then you see this throughout the gospel of Mark, that Jesus marches around from place to place, breaking different sieges of what binds people, and releasing them out of captivity into a relationship or a formation around him and his kingdom. He's starting a new kingdom. And the, to start a new kingdom as its king means you have to have followers, and to get followers means you have to release them from captivity. Which leads us to the next word I want to look at, which is the word faith. And I think if there's any proof that the modern Christian political imagination has withered on the vine, it's in this word. We now find it almost impossible to think of the word faith or belief as anything other than something like some kind of mental assent to a series of propositions. So for example, you're given the creed about the Trinity and you have to mentally check that off to say you believe. Or perhaps you're given a list of stories or ideas about miracles and you have to assent 
to the miracles in order to say you believe. Or perhaps we think of belief as some kind of mental and emotional energy that you've now generated from within yourself. So you want to pray for somebody and they've got a bad leg. And so you gather around and you're, okay, Jesus said to pray for the sick. So we're going to pray for the sick. So I'm going to pray for this person's leg. And I'm going to visualize as clear as I can this person's leg being healed. And I'm not going to allow any doubt to creep in. Because if I can visualize the leg being healed, then that's what faith is. And Jesus loves faith, and that's how we heal people. And so you screw up your mental reserves, you build up the emotional fire, and you have faith. You visualize as clearly as you can the person being healed. And then if the person isn't healed, you immediately think, well, one or the other of us wasn't imagining things clearly enough, perhaps. We allow doubt to creep in. Or maybe we go back to the intellectual ascent and maybe we think, ah, we didn't check a box. There's some checkbox in our mental list that we didn't tick. So we can't be said to have faith. And we think, don't we, modern Christians, that the opposite of faith is doubt. And we think of doubt as the great big thing that if you have doubt, then you've lost your faith. But in the New Testament, the word faith or belief is pistos. And the opposite of pistos is not doubt. It's offense. Pistos means allegiance, affiliation, being unashamed to be seen to be with someone. That's what faith means in the New Testament. It means, come follow me, says Jesus, which is the same as saying, come have faith in me. When you have faith in a leader, you might not understand everything that that leader is promising, you might not know how she's going to meet the promises she's making, but what you say is, I trust her. I want to be where she is. I don't know how she's going to deliver, but I like her. So you're seen to have faith in that person. And that's what we mean in the New Testament says to have faith in Jesus. It's not asking you to be able to believe six impossible things before breakfast or to be able to explain the Trinity, or the resurrection, or the miracle of water into wine to a sceptical audience without faltering. You're not being asked to be some sort of apologetics wizard when you're said to have faith in Jesus. You are simply going to be like the Apostle Peter, who when all the other disciples left, Jesus turns to him and says, what about you? And Peter says, where else can we turn? You have the words of eternal life. And you can see this again and again, even in the New Testament and in the Gospels, there's a great story, one, just one example of many. Here's a story from John 7, the first few verses of John 7, so from 7, 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of the booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one who works in secret, if he seeks to be known openly, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. Jesus' own brothers, his own family, have seen the miracles. They can see things happening. They do not doubt that miracles are occurring. Jesus here is someone who can do amazing things, and he could get followers. And his disciples, his own brothers, say, no one who wants disciples will do these things in secret. You should do them in open. Show yourself to the world. But then you see verse 5. 
for not even his brothers believed in him. Recognizing and assenting to miracles is not the same as believing in Jesus. And this happens a lot in the New Testament, by the way. Every time Pharisees or scribes witness a miracle, they don't doubt the miracle happened. What they do is they are offended by the person doing the miracle. When Lazarus gets raised from the dead, that's the time when the temple authorities decide they need to kill Jesus and kill Lazarus. And their objection is not that Lazarus didn't really raise from the dead, or that this was some sort of fraud. Their objection is, this guy doing that miracle is getting all the followers. The whole world is going over to him. We need to do something about it. They recognize the miracle, but they do not have faith in Jesus. Because having faith is, that's the leader we want to be seen to be with him. Which is why the opposite of faith is not doubt in the New Testament, it's shame. People who are embarrassed to be seen to be with Jesus. And Jesus himself says, when I return, will I find faith upon the earth, or will I be ashamed of this generation as they are ashamed of me? Will I have faith in this generation? Again, you go less wrong less often. If in the New Testament you replace the word faith with the word patriotism or allegiance, because this is the idea that's being hammered home again and again and again, is that Jesus is starting a new kingdom, or is he announcing the kingdom of God. And if you are where he is, and if you follow him and his words, then you are having faith in the kingdom of God. You are part of his kingdom, and he is your leader. And he is being portrayed as the right king. And time and time again, Jesus commends people for their faith. He says, your faith has healed you, or... I've never seen anyone with as much faith as this. And every time you need to go and look at this, there's always some sort of forward movement going on. The people are coming out of the crowd towards Jesus, or they come running towards him. For example, the woman who's been bleeding, menstrual bleeding for 12 years, she comes out of the crowd to touch his hem. And Jesus looks at her and says, your faith has healed you. Or Zacchaeus up in the tree, he comes down out of the crowd and into Jesus's presence. You see this a lot and you see people come running towards Jesus and then their faith is what heals them. The, the friends of the paralyzed man who have so much faith in Jesus and so much want to be seen to be where he is that they rip the roof off of the building in order to let their friend down. And Jesus looks at the two and says, your faith has healed your friend. Your willingness to be seen to be with me is what's bringing life in all its fullness to the people around me. Have a look at John 3, where Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee, a, an elite figure who was born into a place of privilege, he and his people, his fellows, they are entrusted with the protection of the hopes and fears and dreams of the Jewish race. It is their job to preserve the purity. It's their job to make sure that the chosen people don't lose their way. And it's a place of immense privilege, which you are inherited into and you're born into. It's a social class and caste, as well as a job description to be a Pharisee. And Nicodemus, we're told in John 3, comes to Jesus at night because he's afraid and ashamed of what his fellows will say if they see him associating with Jesus. And then Jesus looks at Nicodemus, doesn't he? And what is his response to Nicodemus? Well, famously, he says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Now, 
When I was six years old, and I grew up in my little evangelical Bible school town, I went to a prayer meeting, and they were singing some songs, and one of the songs was, Oh, How I Love Jesus. And I was a six-year-old, and I had an existential moment where I realized the song I'm singing, I don't believe. I need to do something about it. I need to decide to love Jesus. And so I prayed a prayer and I invited Jesus into my heart. Now, this is a very important moment for me. I am not making fun of this at all. But I do need you to hear that when Nicodemus looked at Jesus and he said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. I guarantee you, Nicodemus did not hear, you must invite me into your heart. What Nicodemus heard is, hey Nicodemus, you know that elite, social, public privilege that you were born into and that you are affiliated with, and who claims your allegiance. You must die to those things, and you must be born into my family. You must be seen to be with me. And this is the claim and the charge that was put to Nicodemus. The solution to his problem was to be born again. And it wasn't an inner, private and secret act. It was deliberately a public act, which would have resulted in downward social mobility for Nicodemus. And in fact, we don't even know what happens to Nicodemus. He fades away at that part of the story, if you'll go and pay attention to it. We don't even know if he does get born again at that moment. He doesn't show up until later at the end, where he's joined with some other high-profile Jewish leaders after Jesus has died. And it does seem that Nicodemus has decided to become associated with the people and the movement. But the, the, the question of being born again is left hanging in, the, in that part of the Gospel of John in John 3. And it's an issue and a question that's always aimed at all of the disciples. Are you ashamed of me? Do you want to be seen to be with me? Which, lest we forget, is a supremely political and social act. It's not a private, inner, philosophical, or religious act. And it also happens to be the thing that Jesus seems to have loved the most in the people that he meets. Which is why it seems to me that this is a good place to start for followers of the way who want to renew their Christian political imagination. I'll continue looking at more terms and filling in our toolbox in the next episode. I'm joined, as always, for a debrief conversation, for a time to test what's going on and what we've said, to test it against my friends Chris Marchand and Sean McCoy. Chris is a former principal of a school. He's an author, which we're going to talk about in a second. And he is a priest, a pastor of an Anglican church in Illinois. Sean is a podcaster. He works for the oil and gas industry, helping to create communications for them, an internal discussion group, which makes the oil and gas industry be something positive and good, which is also something I want to talk about with Sean, perhaps in, a, in another episode. But for the moment, we are here to talk theology and politics. Sean, I was talking about the gospel. I was talking about faith. I was talking about reading from below. What does that feel like as a Texan to hear me talk about this kind of stuff? Well, part of my part of my journey around what you were saying when you used the Greek word euangelion and the context that it was typically used in terms of a conquering aspect and how 
it was kind of this this glorious declaration as as the conquering Roman armies would go through certain places as kind of this you know this triumphant uh, you know victory and how they they decided the authors you know the Paulinian translators and people of that nature and correct me if I get this wrong but how they used it to kind of represent what this what the message of of the Christ was and so I have I was having a real my knee jerk right now when I hear something like that and I see that is it just seems to it shows me that there's this kind of this love and this romance with power and control. Right. And then we, that's how we, we glorify that when it happens. And then where I'm, where I'm, I don't want to say where I'm, where I'm wrestling, not struggling, but where I'm wrestling is it just seems to me from a divinity standpoint. And then if you look at what, what it meant to follow Jesus and what Jesus did, it, you know, it's like that we talk about that, like the whole, you know, you know, Jesus, could, God could call down armies of angels and do all these other things and, or God could just be divine period not do it any other way and does not use the resources and the force and the power within to control what we're doing. Right. So, so my struggle goes down that road of even, even what it means to say good news. Cause I'm not, cause I'm having a lot of difficulty around dualism. I'm having a lot of difficulty around kind of the polarization of things that if it's not this, it's that. And so, because it seems to me like most of that is done to gain authority and control and power over something in some capacity and coming from, a Western context coming from a context in the, in the corporate world, coming from a context of the big bright, uh, the lone star flag and all that stuff, as you were alluding to, you know, my, my world up until now has been arguing with me to, to believe in that. And I may not have been always a, a true believer in that, um, but definitely was part of that system. And so now it's very, very hard to listen to all that stuff and not react in such a way that makes me want to pull away from it and almost even say, I don't want to call it good news in that context either. I'd rather use a different context as more of kind of a, of a, I don't know, more, much more, not not suppressive or that you're giving away, but just much less authoritarian in its nature. I mean, it's the same sort of tension that you even find in the Gospels themselves, which is that Jesus is always having to re-educate his disciples and the people around him who they keep using Messiah language, and when they use it, they are they're thinking. Braveheart, <laughs> you know, they're, I know you like Braveheart, Sean. You know, they're thinking, yeah, this is the new superhero, the great king who's going to come. And Jesus basically goes, well, yeah, I, I am a king. I am a messiah. It's just, it doesn't mean any of the things that you think. And that's a little bit like what they're doing with the gospel language. They're appropriating language, which feels like your emperor has come back, but it looks like a guy hanging on a cross. And so that's, they're like deliberate. I think these these guys in the Gospels they're deliberately playing with that. So they they're not giving up the language. They're just almost refusing to. They're saying no, no, that emperor king language. We're going to have that. You know, that's not for you. It looks. It doesn't look like a bully anymore. It doesn't look like somebody at the head of an army. It looks like it looks like what Jesus looks like. So it's it's part of the big job the the New Testament is doing. I am going to talk about this later because the the whole issue of Philippians two. And Jesus didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. That is an absolute core text, and it's a central plank in a political theology. And I will be devoting something, a whole episode or two to that coming up. So I probably won't launch into it too much. Chris, you're shaking your head. What are you... You're nodding, shaking. I can't tell what he. Yeah, think? I'm. I'm. I'm just over here convulsing. Yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, well, no. I, I, to really go along with what you both have just said, I. 
I think maybe one of the more interesting things and intriguing things that you said in, in, in this talk was the followers of Jesus looked at what Jesus gave them and they realized we can't run a country this way. <laughs> and uh, the, like, if we're going to follow after uh, Jesus who gave us this, you know, he gave us the Sermon on the Mount or, or you know, whatever the teachings were, he demonstrated it through, through his healings and the way that he, he gave away his power. We can't run a country that way. I, you know, again, like with 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 many uh, politicians, people will say, well, you can't, I know the Sermon on the Mount says this. I mean, you've already said this in your talks. I know the Sermon on the Mount says this, but you can't run a country that way. And then yeah. that's used as an excuse to, to just say, well, politicians got to do what politicians got to do. Uh, first of all, let me say this. I'm interested in, in that tension, you know, like, well, what does that mean? What does that mean for me as a follower of Christ? Like, how, how do I, how do I, can I be a civil servant? Can I get a paycheck from the government? Do I run for local office? What, what does that look like on the ground level? I'm not even talking presidents or, you know, being in Congress or anything, but you know, what does that look like? That's, that's my first question. And I know, I mean, I think that's why we're here is to have that kind of conversation. But the second thing is though, I feel like every time somebody talks about giving up power or living a nonviolent life, people have this reaction, like, are you out of your mind? <laughs> like, like, what's wrong with you as a person to think that you could ever operate that way? Nonviolence? What is wrong with you? And, and I think my, maybe my question is, is, as I delve deeper into this way of living and way of seeing the world, is my question is, is well, why can't we just try it? <laughs> why can't we give this nonviolence thing or this giving away of power a try? I, I think I see so little people even trying it. Right. And also we don't, well, it, okay. First of all, it doesn't, I, I wouldn't say it never happens because I know followers of Jesus who organize themselves in a way that this does happen. So I know it, it works, but you could organize, we could organize ourselves or seek to gather together. Just, it's almost like get your own house in order. Like we can do it ourselves. It doesn't, we don't have to try and focus on um, building a nation all the time like so this is part of what i think is the the addiction we have to nation building and to nationalism is that we think that the nation is the is the kind of end point and so we go oh well, it doesn't work it it, it doesn't work in big groups that only works for small groups so we shouldn't do it and i'm thinking well that might be the point <laughs> maybe groups can get too big you know maybe if you do get to a, a, an organization of people that is so big that you can no longer look them in the eye and know them you know name by name and you can't trust the boundaries where where you're in a mutual submission to each other and each is considering others better than themselves maybe if you can't get there you're too big i'm um, like the whole english parish system chris do they use the parish system with, with anglicans in america well the answer is yes or i think us anglicans over here we we want to think that we could do that but the problem is most of our churches are just you know, multi-region, like people are driving 20 minutes, but it doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't I work. mean, it's, it is essentially now in the UK, it's, it's multi-region churches as well, but mm -hmm. it's built on a, a basis, which was the parish system, yeah. which was, it's not a religious system. It had to do with localities and it was, it was numerically related. And I think it was something like 120 people equals a parish. And so it was, a, it was basically like, that is the, the best amount of people where you can all know each other and you know you know the famous kind of cliche where like you have your where a married couple is going to 
the, the, the priest says, if anyone has any reason why these two should not be married, they have to speak now or forever hold their peace. Well, that came out of the parish system because you were supposed to get married in your home parish, which had 120 people in it, which is enough people that everyone knows each other. And so if you're getting married in your parish and you're actually getting married to your sister or to you have two wives, somebody knows it and they'll stand up and they'll say, no, this isn't right. I know this person. I know he's already married. That's where that came from. But of course, it, so it's based on mutual recognition. It's based on us, the idea that there isn't a maximal or optimal number of a group. And in their wisdom, they worked out is roughly 120 people. But anyway, that's just the kind of point that like, just pointing out that a, a way of living doesn't work for a nation, to me, isn't a reason not to do it. It's just maybe to say, well, maybe nations aren't the best optimal groups. You know, maybe our solution to global problems is, is local, which is what Wendell Berry says, which I, I think we should talk, talk about him later. Yeah. Or Chris, what were you going to say? I was just curious if either of you had seen the, it's a half an hour documentary called Godspeed. Have you ever seen this or heard of this documentary? I think it's available free online, but it's, it's an argument for the parish model. It was about the Anglican priest and the, the, his, his head rector just said, go out, discover your parish. And it was kind of about his journey of ministry, just discovering the people that lived around him. And so I would say that even though my church is regional, I, as a minister, or as just a faithful Christian, I can discover my neighbors. I can discover my parish around me, even if it, my church doesn't operate that way anymore. So, you know, there is a sense of like, let's tweak that in our imaginations. That why, you know, it's famously, you, you asked about going for office and stuff. I mean, it, it's a well-known problem that in politics that human beings we tend to, and certainly this is true for christians we tend to put all of our energy into national politics and almost no energy at all into local politics and yet the influence on your life and on the life of your of your neighbors is far higher when it comes to local politics than it is to national and so we put all our energy into something that has very little influence on our lives and we put almost nothing into what would actually help our neighbors, which is why, like, if you say, oh, should Christians get into politics? I'm like, well, what kind of politics? Because uh, actually get involved in your local councils, get in, join the PTA, you know, join the neighborhood watch. That's politics. And that has an actual impact in people's lives as well. And you don't get drunk on power. <laughs> And you don't have to press a button that kills a human being, you know, at the end of it. Yeah, there's a whole lot of things you can do. But I would say the other thing is, though, when it comes to like, can Christians do certain jobs? Like, could Christians become president or whatever? Is like, one of the things I often say is like, we've got to unwean ourselves from this addiction to thinking that being a follower of Jesus makes you good at every job. It might not make you good at every job. There are some jobs out there that being a follower of Jesus makes you an imminently bad choice. <laughs> a director of pornographic films <laughs> yeah, you know, or whatever. Like there are jobs out there that you can't do and be a follower of Jesus. Why do we not assume that that could also be true for you know some of these jobs out there that require, for example, the killing of human beings? And the fact that, that we have so many Christians today that just can't even imagine that you wouldn't take that job like i'm not even saying that it's all i'm not even making an argument that it's like bad to be a, a soldier or bad to kill a you know a murderer in in prison 
for capital punishment. I'm not even making that argument. I'm just saying, at the very least, can we admit that followers of Jesus, that is a, a problematic job for you? You know, can we at least have the conversation? I'm around people all the time. They don't even have the conversation. They're just like, well, of course, if my nation needs me to do it, of course I'm going to do it. And so that's part of what I'm trying to get at here. And I'm not solving all the problems, but I think that there's probably some room to uh, to have those thoughts. And then, and then if you do conclude, well, I can't actually be a part of a job where I'm required to take a human life in order to solve a problem. So what can I do instead? You know, maybe I'm going to pour my energy into, into alternatives, making that making it so that it's less likely you ever would have to take a human life, you know, to, to, to not take a job as a, as a magistrate or a soldier or something is not like saying, I'm going to opt out of society altogether. What I also hear from what you're saying is we also think that we can only make an impact if we have that job. Right? And I think about Galib, it was Galibe's story that he talked about, the same one that you mentioned on the nomad way back about the impact you can have on society without having to like be in charge. Yeah. And then ultimately to your point about being political or being, you know, we're, it's kind of one of the aspects that we're, you know, you'd mentioned wanting to do with this podcast, which was redefining what it even means to be political, that we think that it yeah. means we have to have a suit and a title and a little flag on our lapel and we have to be some sort of congressman or some sort of represent, you know, elected representative when we can make a political impact without even having to do that. You know, maybe it's even supporting the HOA or being a part of somebody that influences what's going on with your PTH or local school or your school district. Yeah or the, you know, the municipal district or something like that, not even an elected official, because it goes back to that power thing that, that I continue to struggle with. Because as soon as I see the the, the, the lure for that, I just go, mm, why is that really happening? And then what Sony, you said about the parish of 120 people, which I think is very interesting. There's a, a podcast that I, one of the first podcasts I ever fell in love with, Mixed Mental Arts by, there's an actor comedian named Brian Callen and my buddy Hunter Motts who hosts that. And there's a thing called the Dunbar number. You may, you've heard of that, yeah. So it's a hundred, but it's 150 people. It's just this, it's okay. this theory that you literally only have the capacity to, to influence and be around. And I think if any of us have been around a small group, like the, like the three of us, like the intimacy, the, your ability to influence. And then if you, and if you compound that, but at some point, but you get like a, like it's like Instagram or social media. Like if you have 4 million people that follow you, how in the world can you even try to serve on a no. fundamental level that relationship one in 4 million. It's like, there's no way, yeah. there's no way you're going to do that effectively. You know, and this is, this is the classic Kierkegaard critique of Christendom is that it's, it is mistaken quantity for quality. So we just think, Oh, there's so many people in my mega church. I must be doing something right. Like, no, you're just doing something popular, which is not the same thing at all. Kierkegaard tells a funny story. Uh, his Kierkegaard's story is of the, the man who makes uh, bottled beer. It costs him 10 cents to make every bottle of beer, but he sells it for five cents a bottle. Somebody comes along to him and says, this is a terrible business model. You're, you're, what's going on here? And he says, yeah, but look how many I'm selling. Look how many bottles I'm selling. I must be doing something right. <laughs> and Kierkegaard says, that's what Christendom is like. It's giving away its best stuff for half the price. And it thinks that it must be winning because there's so many people that are buying it up when in fact, all they're doing is putting themselves out of business. <laughs> so you're saying, in a sense, the church, in, maybe in the way the church is making disciples, is putting itself out of business. Is that maybe a parallel? Is that well? No, I would say that like the church that that looks at how many people are you know subscribing to its newsletters or sitting in its pews or buying its CDs or you know reading its books. A book, a, a church movement that 
mistakes quantity, the number of people with the quality is going to die. And it, it, it might be dead, even if it still has 10,000 people sitting in its stadium, but it's still dead. Right. Yeah, I, I probably should have put disciples in scare quotes. And I think that's what I yeah, mean. Right. right. Yeah, you got all these people here. You have the disciples, but they're actually not disciples. Right. They're exactly. Not... Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. our measure of discipleship, it's not rocket science, right? It's it's pretty easy. Sermon on the Mount, the Gospels, the fruits of the Spirit. Like these kind of things aren't hard to to dis, to discern. They're just something that actually can't basically almost can't be done with some of the church models that we have. And they're just not fit for purpose. And that's, you know, that's not to say the people running them are bad people. I just think they're not able to do the job that they that they want to do as well. You know, I'm a big fan of going small. It also reminds me a little bit about podcasting and even social media where you can have engagements and look at all these interactions and views and stuff that we've had. But how many of them actually mean something? And you right. can have all kinds of downloads, you know, for our for this show. You know, I don't I don't want fans. I don't want people to be fans of ours. And, and I mean, the collective hour, not me personally, I'm saying like the show, I would rather have supporters and people come alongside. And so for those that are listening, I mean, we would much rather it be something where we could literally have this conversation with that other person with us versus we're up here just, you know, spouting for them to be, for them to listen, you know, more of this kind of this intimacy, bring them within that 120 in the parish or yeah. inside that Dunbar number, which I think gets lost. And this is always, and this is the part where I always wonder, I'm having this conversation today with a, with a guy here, a friend of mine, we were talking about like we do when we are on individual conversations, you know, everybody seems to have the same conversation around what's wrong. And we look at things like term limits in Congress and we look at, and I just say, if you're, if you're there 30, 40 years, the, the average human being, even if they are a Christian, even if they love Jesus, even if they're just so, you know, like they, they go and they just l lament and the stories and the, everything, and they've felt the spirit and the rest of these things. But when you're, when you're in charge of the house and ways, you know, Senate committee or, you know, you're, you're the person who's appropriating the billions of dollars we spend on uh, military spending. And you're the person behind that who's controlling that. I mean, it, it, and not to have some level, I mean, I know enough about business and been around money, money. It is a powerful lure. And so it, it, yeah. it can entrap you. It can make you think that you're doing the right thing, but it, it, right. It becomes a, it becomes a drug almost. And so I don't, I don't think Joe Biden's a problem. And I would even say this on some level, I don't think Donald Trump's the problem. You know, I don't think Donald, if we got rid of Donald Trump, you know, like, oh, we got to get this guy out of, great, get him out of office. Or what if he just died yeah. of a heart attack? The world would not be, No, the world wouldn't just automatically become a better place. Exactly. As it wouldn't. Exactly. Exactly. This is not, we're talking systematic here. We're not talking individuals. I guess it's part of this problem we've been talking about. Like if your view of Christianity, it just begins and ends with the individual. Well, then you're in trouble because it isn't about the individual. It's about what culture has created the conditions in which we find someone like Donald Trump an attractive option. That's an issue. I'd like to look at that. That culture is still going to be there. You know, if Biden wins, that culture is going to get even stronger. <laughs> it's not going to disappear. And when Trump loses or when he, you know, doesn't do a second term or he can't do a third term, uh, that culture will still be there. Like we're not talking about individuals. We're not, it's not an individual solution. It's a cultural solution or it's an imagination. It has to do with like, what do we think, what, what do we think we're doing here? What do we want to look like? What do we want the world to be like? And those are political questions to ask, even if you did. Now, I think we do have to talk about voting because this comes up a lot. Should we vote and what? And I, I want to bring in some like people who have put some serious thought into it. I mean, there's no point us just talking about it. I, I want to find out some real stuff about that. But like this idea that, oh, they're all corrupt, so we shouldn't vote at all. 
I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I'm tempted towards that. I'm tempted to just sort of say enough of that. But I think we need to think a little bit more about what it might look like to to pepper your to yeast through the dough, like to 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 pepper your influence in all the ways that you can, and just not to become a sort of worship one of them. So we just vote every four years, do it because that's what you're supposed to do, but don't worship it. Don't think it's going to solve all the problems. Use your vote for somebody else. Like how would a Christian who's seeking to give away power, like if if you really do think that a, a Christ-like politics means seeking as much as possible to give power away to other people, okay? Then, and if you think your vote is a one little form of power, which it is, well, how, how could we vote in order to benefit someone else? How, what would a Christ-like way of voting look like? Rather than think, I will refuse to put my ex next to any name that's going to hurt my sense of moral superiority or purity. What if we said, I'm going to use the little bit of power I've been given to help somebody else. And you think of others better than yourself, you know? How would my neighbor want me to vote? Or that kind of thing. So I just, there's little things like that. I'm not saying it's going to solve all the problems in the world, but I just feel like so much of our energy is based on like, how do we support somebody who's going to protect our rights as a Christian group rather than how do we support people who are going to protect our neighbor's rights? So those are the kinds of things that I've been circling around. And, and I think that, that you could you could see that as a political act, you know, which doesn't which doesn't include gathering power for your own group. I think the problem is, and it goes back to what we talked about just you know a few minutes ago about being local is it's really hard for me to educate myself on the people that need to be elected locally. So I wonder if there's more that can be done where everybody in my region, there's some kind of public forum for people to be educated because it's, it's right. I mean, Sean, I'm really interested. I know you have some thoughts on voting and some things you've been discussing with other people, because quite frankly, nationally, I just kind of, I do feel helpless, but I have not put in the effort to figure out what it means to vote locally and, and really be informed with these people. Like, you know, there, there's a mayor, mayoral election coming up for my city and there's, there's a decent amount of, there's a decent amount of candidates in the field. And so why, why am I not figuring that out for my, for my family, for my, for my community? So yeah, there's, there's work to be done. Yeah. It's a bit like, uh, I don't know, carbon offsetting or something like if, if you think, okay, I need to take this airplane trip. And I also think that the carbon that's being emitted is not great. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to voluntarily pay a bit of extra money in order to offset the carbon somewhere else. You know, you could do that with voting. You'd be like, okay, I'm not going to vote. <laughs> for the Nash in the national elections, because I think they're both abusing my trust. But that doesn't mean I'm opting out. It means I'm going to double my efforts to focus on the local politics. So I'm going to really be involved. That's the kind of thing I, I'd like to try and do. Sean, what were you going to say? But, but to that, from a voting standpoint, the thing that I've run into literally for the last, so I started voting in earnest probably 2000 after I got out of the Navy in 98. Mm -hmm. So I intimately voted for, I didn't do midterms. I just it just didn't. I mean, you know, the presidential, did it become part of the thing? The presidential election year is almost like you know, the Olympics every four years. But what I found myself that when I, and I've seen this now for years and it really, it really hit me in the last, and I did vote in midterms in 2018. To your point, I would, president, I knew who the, I knew who the, I knew who was running for president on even the lower levels. But then, you know, you go down from there and, you know, yes, yeah, sure, congressmen, congressmen, congresswomen, I knew. But then after that, no, exactly. I was like, 
And, and there were so many more of that. It was like this massive page after page after page list. And yet, and I'm sitting there going, how can I honestly, I literally have no idea who these people are. None. I don't know what they stand for. I don't know their history. All I know is there's an R and a D or an L or maybe an I somewhere. And just kind of like, what do I do? And I know that there's an importance to it. I mean, I'm giving a power away from a political vote standpoint. And yeah, I walked in here and there was somebody out there holding a sign saying I should vote for this person. I don't know them. And so that that's where that's really what's been pushing me to my towards my attitude coming up in 2020 in terms of what I want to do in terms of quote unquote voting. So I just feel helpless. I feel like not only do I feel helpless, but I also feel like I'm not doing my duty. Well, I was just going to say, see, this is the this is where another thing followers of Jesus really need to start paying attention when you are told or when you are. It is implied that duty voting is your sacred duty, right? You need to vote because this is your God given whatever or this is your sacred when when that kind of language moral obligation and sacred language shows up. That's when the follower of Jesus goes, oh, wait a second. What's going on here? Is this really sacred? I just heard that language today. Um, I, I don't know if you're aware of uh, John Lewis. He's a civil rights leader. Uh, yeah. He's in Congress. He just died. Yeah. And the excerpt on the radio this morning, he literally just said that. He, he said that voting is sacred. And when he said it, you know, my, I, you know, the sirens started going off. I thought, right. oh, no, there it is. There it is. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's that's worshiping the democratic process, right? I mean, that's just what that is. You know, I get to look at that and go, all right, I know I don't need to participate in that worship of a thing. But then, you know, we get that useful stuff from 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 the book of Acts. We get Paul's letters, you know, sac food sacrifice to idols, participating in cultures that have idolatry in them. They were actually pretty, you know, in a weird way, the early Christians were relatively relaxed about participating in that stuff the stronger brothers thought it was fine but they also were aware that it it wasn't real so they're like yeah well we'll eat some meat that we know have been sacrificed to idols because we know that those idols are false so we can do it and paul's like yeah you're right stronger brothers you're right you should do that however if it's going to offend the younger the weaker brothers conscience then you shouldn't do it but the, the point wasn't that he was saying there's idolatry in the in the marketplace, therefore you shouldn't participate. He doesn't say that. And I, I think there's something similar for us about identifying idolatry. We can identify it. And now we can use the early Christian imagination of what to do once you've identified idolatry. And it isn't always burn it to the ground. Sometimes it's just gently laugh at it or ignore it. Treat it with benign indifference, right? You know, there's those kind of options I think are all open to us. It's not sacred or nothing. It could, it could be relegating it to a lesser position than it's claiming for itself. One last thing that reminded me of, you know, you've shared some of them. We've gotten a lot of correspondence. I know, or at least you have, and a lot of good correspondence. We've had some that was, you know, critical of some of the things that have been said so far. And so everybody out there listening, please know that we, you know, we get those. I, I love to hear both. I want to hear everything, good or bad. So please reach out. But one of the things that the one correspondence we had talked about was, that language of God-given right to do this and your God-given, or what about your God-given right to this? Right. And I kept thinking in my head, like, where, where does it say that? Like, when, when did we have that? That's just something we, and it's this language, but it's language I've heard my whole life. It's, you know, you know freedom and, you know, your God-given rights is whatever. And, and at first you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. But now I'm kind of like, I don't. I mean, this is, I, let, let's, let's, let's come into a close here, but the, just to wrap it up with the language that I was using in the, in the talk earlier before the break was 
you know, this is the language of faith, not as your own emotional response to a thing or your own intellectual assent to a series of propositions. So we have this idea, don't we, that like right now Christians think, oh, my faith is separate from my politics. Like I believe in the virgin birth. I believe in the resurrection and I could talk about the Trinity without committing a heresy. So I have faith and that is different from my politics, right? Or we'll have somebody who thinks, oh, I doubt that Jesus turned water into wine or I don't know how the resurrection happened. So I don't have faith, but I do care about identifying with the people that Jesus identified with. I do care and like the name of Jesus and being affiliated with it. And all I want to point out is that you have faith just because you doubt the miracles of the resurrection or the Trinity, but you're not ashamed of Jesus. From his point of view, you have faith in him. And just somebody who says, I can tell you all how the miracles happened and I can explain the Trinity to you, but I don't care about my neighbor and I don't, and I'm trying to grasp power for myself and I'm clutching tightly to what I have was rightfully mine. Jesus would look at you and go, you don't have faith. You don't know me. You're not following me, right? So I do feel like faith is a political word because it has to do with following a movement. What movement are you seen to be part of? So that's where I kind of think of, of politics and faith connecting, not so much in how does your Christianity inform who you vote. It's who, who's, what, what movement are you congregating around? Who are you publicly identified with? And to me, that's a political thing. Well, friends, I'm going to end there. It was very nice to see you both. And I look forward to having a further conversation. In the next episode, we are going to be looking at resources. We're going to be looking at all the different uh, material that is out there for people who want to be followers of the way and who have perhaps decided they don't need to keep looking at nationalist and patriotic type stuff. There is other stuff out there. So we're going to do that. But until then, I'm going to leave you for now and I look forward to talking soon. Goodbye for me. God bless. To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about Tenth Theology at www.tenththeology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.